Are you tired of political philosophies which require everyone to subscribe to the same idea in order to work? Something like, if only everyone agreed on my political philosophy, everything would be great. Are you fed up with talking about the utopia you'd like to live in, only to come back to our reality and see no path from here to there? There's got to be a better way. Introducing Agorism, your ticket to freedom, today. Philosophers. Philosophers. Okay, David, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about philosophy on this show <gasps> for the first time in I don't know how long it's been. Probably not that long, actually. Who knows? Uh, but this week, we're going to talk about the philosophy slash lifestyle of agorism. Okay. So let's briefly go into like what agorism is. Is because I think a lot of people, me included, when I first found out about it, had no clue what that word. Yeah, most meant. people I don't think have ever heard this word before uh, ever. So, um, agorism, I guess we'll we'll do the etymology first. Comes from the Greek word agora, which okay. means like marketplace, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of agorism is well, it's sort of a a rebranding but it's not a, a rebranding of the same thing it's it's sort of the the philosophy of like not necessarily classical libertarianism but maybe a little bit later than that um and like the a, a pragmatic strategy for actually doing it that doesn't involve contradictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean to quote the book on it because the, the 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 we're gonna say the book a bunch of times. Um, we're yes, we're referring to the book "An Agorist Primer" by Samuel E. Konkin the Third, right? Which is kind of like the manual on how to agorism, right? I don't know if he was actually the first person to write about agorism or not, but uh, he did a pretty good job with this book. Sure. Um, and he gives several definitions of agorism in the introduction, um, a historical one, so on and so forth. And I think, um, given the knowledge you listeners have now, <clears throat> this would be the definition to start with, but there's a, a better, there's another definition too. Um, he would say to quote the book, it says those who continue to seek liberty consistently and without the practical contradiction of libertarians became agorists. This is the second historical definition. So right. there's one other one that comes before that, but he pretty much says what it isn't, which he pretty much says that it isn't libertarianism necessarily, but it's more than that. And there's an, the best right. definition. A- agorists have that label to distinguish themselves from libertarians for a reason. Yes. Yeah. And there's a and there's one other definition that he gives, but we'll kind of probably touch on that as we come to it because it it uses a word that we also haven't defined yet so let's i think maybe go in time with that so okay so that being said um so what does it mean like what what things are we taking here from libertarians and like as we kind of put it as libertarians the libertarianism meets pragmatism kind of as a right so the thing that agorism concerns itself with that has to do with libertarianism is freedom, individual freedom, right. liberty, if you will. Um, the The idea is, so, so agorism in this case, like the philosophy side of agorism is 
the non-aggression principle. It's just the non-aggression principle. Um, Which is... Everything is permitted except coercion or like initiation of coercion. Yes. And coercion is the essentially threatening or the use of force to um, to make other people do something else that they would otherwise have done. Like that's right. the really dumbed down version of what coercion means in this case. Right. Aggression, if you will. Right. Hence which, non-aggression principle. Which importantly, again, I know I've just said this, but it's important to say um, a lot of people, when they think of aggression, they think of violence. But aggression or coercion and or aggression in this case includes also threats of violence. So it's enough to threaten violence to also, it, it equivalates the two. Because the threat of violence is just Well, yeah, if I threaten out. you to get you to do something, I'm still coercing you. Because right. you don't know if I'll actually follow through or not. Right. And if it, because if you, if I make a threat against you and you don't think I'm going to follow through on it, then I haven't really successfully threatened you. Right. I haven't coerced you because you're just going to ignore what I have to say. Exactly. And I think there's, I mean, you and a lot of people, you know, and maybe you included, um, when I'm talking to other people about like political philosophy and things like that, and they ask me, like, well, what's your take on it? I'll still tend to use the word I'm more libertarian leaning a lot of the time because that's something that a lot of people are more familiar with. And a lot of people kind of define libertarianism. One definition I've heard of it is people who are very socially liberal but economically conservative. But that doesn't actually mean what it means. But right, it's closer. It, it, it gets you out of the two big buckets, right? Yes. Yeah. It, it, it clearly establishes you as, yeah, I'm not a leftist and I'm not a rightist. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that there's also just a whole bunch of baggage that comes with that term now. And this is also talked about in the book about how, you know, originally it was, it was about people who wanted Liberty and then it was, well, now we're going to make, you know, a party about it and try to like use the system of the state to undermine the state. Right. You got to become that, which you seek to destroy or destroy it from within or whatever. Right. And so Samuel, and other agorists basically look at that and say, you're all fools. You are, yeah, you're becoming the thing that you seek to destroy. It's never going to work. Right. And so that, I think that's where the, where the real split between agorists and libertarians right. are. Like you won't, you, you should yeah. never see an you agorist can't, party. You can't free society by seizing power. Right. Because then you have power, which is not a free society. Right. So that all being said, I think, that's a good starting place for what it is. So we've kind of already talked a little bit about it, but what are the goals of agorism as you know, specifically to, for individuals to. Okay. Well, for individuals uh, to live in what Samuel called and other agorists call the agora, which is just a free market. Okay. That's literally it. That is the whole goal. Mm-hmm. Now, that's another term we should probably yes. take to task because the free market also gets used a lot. That also has baggage. Yeah, you're right. And particularly, I think one of the biggest things that I really appreciate that the Agris Primer does is it takes capitalists to task. Like, yeah, actual capitalism, like capital C capitalism, you know. Because um, before, you know, I've... You know, we've both even said, I think, at some points on the show that we are capitalists or that we agree with capitalism to some degree. Right. But what we really mean is free market capitalism. Right. <clears throat> um, 
because at its core um capitalism is the ideology of capital or of the capitalist it's what capitalism is and he mentions this in the book <clears throat> to quote uh, before marx came along the pure free marketeer thomas hodgkins had already used the term capitalism as a pejorative uh, capitalists were trying to use coercion, the state, to restrict the market. Capitalism then does not describe a free market, but a form of statism. Like communism, free enterprise can only exist in a free market. So the one thing that capitalism does that I think that makes me sometimes okay with accepting the term is it at least acknowledges that there is work to be done in financing the labor of others. And that it, it also accepts that there's this idea of property which communism doesn't necessarily, you know. And uh, so if I had to pick between those two, I would pick capitalism over communism, for example, and that dichotomy. But ideally, the thing that they both don't have, like you, you could theoretically, and that's kind of what you see today. A lot of people, I think when they think things like, like we used to say when people say, oh, we're in late stage capitalism. That's the meme word phrase you hear these days. Um, right. They mean the corporatist type society we have in the United States. Right. Where it's a merger kind of of the corporations and the state to make deals that... To ruin everything for all of us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> for their own wealth. Exactly. And um, I feel like I see way too many people that fall under the capitalist banner feeling the need to defend that behavior. Um, but uh, you shouldn't. But you should it's wrong. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, essentially a free market in its most plainest definitions is any market in which people can freely exchange goods or services. Right. However they choose to do so. Yeah. Anything is permissible so long as it doesn't initiate force. Right. Yep. And that, that eliminates all the panics of, oh, well, you know, if there's, you know, a free society and we'll, we'll get, we'll get to government, I guess here in a bit, but you know, if there's, if there's no government, well, how are people just going to murder each other? It's like, well, no, that's, that's not allowed. And there's ways to get around that in a free society. Mm -hmm. Yep. So let's take a little sidetrack here and talk about why we're even bothering to talk about this in general. Cause I remember when we put this topic on here, so some time ago, I was talking to you, I was on a, I was taking a trip, I was on vacation and we were driving my wife and I through the countryside and I was like looking out at all these places and, and I was thinking about how nice it would be to live in a place where, you know, I could, we could, I could set up a little micro society and an unincorporated piece of land and, you know, be free of a lot of things that I don't like about the place I currently live, places I have lived, you know, um, and, and, and it does kind of come from this idea of like, wouldn't it be nice if me and all my friends could go live next to each other in this really nice place, right? Like, sure. And, and that is very dependent on the perspective of the individual, because this is, I think, the same thing that a lot of anarcho-communists feel like as well. They, they imagine a place where... Yeah, what if me and all my friends went out in the middle of nowhere and started a commune? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> never had that that dream but but still i was thinking about it you know and i started working through it in my head like what would be a good place for this you know like you would need to have a body of water nearby or one that you could kind of pseudo control to some degree and 
you know, could we build, could we build all the things that we needed to be somewhat self-sufficient and not, not necessarily like create a gulch, gulch type thing where, you know, oh, we're going to recede from society and let society live or die as it wants to, you know, because there is no full withdrawal from society, really. Um, well, there is, but it's forms of insanity that allow you to do that. Um, but you could, at the very, very least, kind of bifurcate, you know, how you would like things to go in your little place and everything else outside. Essentially forming a micro-nation, in a way, because this is already how nations perform, especially in places like Europe. Switzerland does things a lot differently than most other places in Europe, um, but it's allowed to exist with the rest of them. And arguably geographically is why it's very hard to go conquer Switzerland because they're up in the mountains and they, you're always fighting uphill when you're fighting them. But regardless of the reasons as to why, you know, they can peacefully coexist with other nations around them that have very different, you know, very different ideologies and such. And it works out, you know, so I think that, that there's this, there is this idea that we can live separately, you know, live in containerized groups next to one another. Right. And so I was talking to you about it and you reminded me that you probably need to read this book because they're essentially that's essentially what you're describing. And so that's why we're doing this topic. But and I understand that maybe I'm coming at this from somewhat more of a romanticized view you know, as I get older. I start getting fed up with certain things and willing to sacrifice certain comforts for other freedoms and. uh you know, it, it's, it would be nice to be able to kind of pick and you pick and choose what things that you want to be able to give up your freedom for and what things that you don't, which I think that's another thing that agorism does well. And we'll, we'll kind of discuss that as we go on, but it being conjoined with pragmatism has to acknowledge the systems in which we live today. Like libertarian, like when you talk to people who are libertarians or even people who are communists or any type of anarchist, really, very seldom will you hear the plan for getting from where we are now to there and what their ideal society looks like. Right. So like if you talk to, you know, capital L libertarians today, then their method for achieving their society that they want is to elect libertarian party candidates mm -hmm. and subvert the system from within. Yeah. And then there's like revolutionary anarchists who want to take up arms and fight the government and try to win there are revolutionary communists too that would like to do this as yes. well tankies i believe is what they're called yes um and to be fair there's the revolutionary right wing as well sure um there's a revolutionary anything really it's just people who are How willing angry do they have to be before they actually take up arms and do it yeah yeah um so anyway so we kind of talked about why an individual might want to do this and what the benefits and goals are for agor you know if you're an agorist as an individual what are your goals that you try to live out in your daily life maybe to, or what, what would you seek to gain from this but then what would be the outcomes for the broader society because that's one thing a lot of other philosophies i feel like don't necessarily take into account they're very they're either entirely social which means that you never consider an individual you always assume society or i think capital l libertarianism tends to do this they speak from the individual perspective but operate at the societal level and so there's just a big break in the theory and the implic in the uh, application right um and agorism by its very name also indicates that a society is necessary you cannot be an agorist of one right right there is no such thing as the agorist on an island 
literally can't exist. Right. Yeah, you're just alone. You're just a person. Yeah. Um, and so, what would be the outcomes for society under agorism? Do you think like what what like how would you how could you look at a society, not an individual, and know that that society is agorist in a way? Well, obviously, it's going to have a free market economy. It's sure. going to be the most most obvious thing. No one is is uh, trying to to fix anything in the economy, and by fix, I mean like keep in place or rig. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think the the biggest thing that you would notice uh, in a in an agorist society is that there's no like. I guess this kind of follows from being a free market, but there's no like public services. Yeah. Um, everything is private. And so like every, everything is essentially done with contracts. Mm -hmm. I would say that one of the other biggest things is that coming and going from that society is simple like to me one of the biggest things you would see is there would not be a clearly defined border that's true you can't necessarily tell when you arrive in an agorist society or when you're leaving it like there's no one to greet you at the door there's no one to tell you to get out necessarily right someone might tell you to get off of their property specifically right but you can't like get deported from agoria like right (laughs) um yeah and there's no yeah, and of course, because it's a, there's no incentive to try to keep foreigners out. More more participants, better. Mm-hmm. Um, and but there's also no reason to keep people in either because there there's no, like, because so you know a reason why a government might care about keeping people in, is well, to tax them. Well, to tax them or to force them into labor, like. To, to make use of them, I think, is the catch-all way I would say it. Because, like, for example, um, I think there's several levels you can look at with this. Uh, North Korea would be, like, the most extreme example where it's like, no, 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 I need slaves, essentially. Serfs. Um, and without them, I don't have people to work and scratch the earth to make, to grow food, you know. Um, in slightly freer societies, like, if you look in the, uh, in Europe, or a lot of countries that have, like, uh, universal health care, for example, and um, government paid for education. One of the things that those governments also tend to have are programs that if you receive a government funded education, you have to stay within that country to work in a certain field for a period of time to justify them expending the money on your education. So for example, you'd have to if you went to school to become a doctor. Well, you can't then just leave to go to a country that didn't pay for your education and wouldn't have paid for your education and make more money. You need to come now work as a doctor for less money than you would in that other place to justify your expense for at least some period of time. And you see this being somewhat common in a lot of places because they understand that if you create doctors, which could go make more money elsewhere, those people wouldn't be highly incentivized. They're just going to take your money to go to school and then leave. Yeah. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with importing people to become doctors. If you come here, uh, you have to become one of the things that we need you to be, and we'll pay for you to be trained to do that. But now you have to stay and, and actually do it. it. Yeah, yeah. And you see that a lot. Um, like the UK has this 
go on a lot. I don't know if it's like actually codified that it's this way, but there's a lot of behavior in which they'll bring people from like India or um, other places with lower standards of living. Um, they bring them in, train them to be doctors and they stay and are doctors there. And they're not driven to move necessarily because, you know, psychologically speaking, you know, I remember what it was like to be in third world country land and this is way way better than that so yeah i'd be more than happy to live a menial existence here because it's still way better than living there but then their children will grow up and become doctors and want to do better and those doctors are going to want to move to the united states or something like that mm -hmm. to practice for much more money you know so with with an agorist society you wouldn't see that there's there there are not there, there are no programs really i would say right in this type of society it's you know, and, and, you and just I would do what you want to yeah, do. You just do what you want to do. And I would also say that there is a, and, and I think that there's an interesting line, like where does a, where does, you know, societal institutions and the state, where does that, where do they begin and end? Right. Because I would think that most people would agree that every society has its institutions, mm -hmm. but they're not all government operated necessarily. Um, but some are, and then there's competing interests for these things, you know, like even in countries that have public and public meaning the state here, public hospitals, but there's also private hospitals, you know, um, they both are hospitals, but they coexist, you know, you, you wouldn't see the public option anywhere, you know, like there is no person that you can go to. That's an authority to like make a complaint to, you know what I mean? Like, Anybody that you would speak to would be just there, no, anybody you speak to or run into would just be another person in the Agora. They, no one is special really in the way that they have more, uh, right. right. Everyone is equal. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that there aren't people whose job it is to say, protect people or mm -hmm. settle disputes or things like that. These people would exist but they would be businesses. Right. Well, or just, they're not like special people who get to do that. They are chosen by people who want them to be doing that for them. Right. So I think a good example of this is if you think of an agorist society as small as a neighborhood, which is the kind of one that I was imagining, um, you know, taking it back to the reason we're even talking about this. Sure. And I kind of, and you and I kind of talked about. It. I was like, man, wouldn't it be neat if we could like buy all the land around this lake, like the hilly land around this lake, and then, you know, we could build our houses here, and then we could incentivize someone else to come live here. And we had a particular person in mind. It's like, well, we kind of need somebody to help take care of the things around here uh, that has these kinds of skills and help us develop a lot of this. And it's like, well, we could pay them to, we could, we could offer them land to live here or sell it to them or whatever. And they could come live here and then we would pay them to do the things that we need, you know. Um, right. To be the land manager or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you would essentially have someone whose job it was to manage the land, um, including your property to certain degrees. Um, oh, and, and then, you know, later on, it's like, man, wouldn't it be nice if we wanted to truly kind of withdraw ourselves even to not be, you know, I don't want to have to put up a United States post office box in front of my house, like a mailbox. I don't want to have an address like that. Okay, well, why don't we build a place for 
a mailbox and we all use this address but now we need somebody whose job it is that we trust to like send and receive mail on our behalf as a go-between in addition we might want to have this person also be security you know we want somebody to make sure that people aren't trying to just come in and out so we would pay that person to be security all of us well that person becomes kind of your de facto police in a way because that's their job you know one thing here because we sort of just contradicted ourselves because we said this is a place that you wouldn't there wouldn't be any problem with coming or going but now you've said that there would be security to maintain who's coming and going sure on private property right yeah yeah the the idea here yes this is a this thing this hypothetical you're talking about is not an agorist society per se it's a closed one i would say right it, yes but this is like a close group of people who all trust each other and have threats on the outside that they want to keep out sure well but then again okay say that we say that there are many other people amongst us that didn't want to have this same thing you and i could still pay for a person to do security for us right right and the and other people in the society may pay their own security person to do security for them so there's several different private institutions that are moving around and offering security services uh, for people and they they're the people you call when someone's creeping around your house at 3 a.m you're not sure who the person is and you're worried they would be the person you would call out there to go put themselves in danger on your behalf to keep you safe right the things that you would expect the police to do you know and this is sounding maybe to some people like a far-fledged concept but like most people already pay for private security not in the form of like a guy comes out to your house but i mean you could though like businesses do that all the time they have security guards that's their job is to go sit there and watch things while everyone else is gone you know um civilians have this in the way of like uh pay someone to come put countermeasures on your house and they have that special you know expertise and they may have people who offer 24 7 live monitoring where that person may not physically be at your house but they may have access to the camera feeds of around your house and a bunch of other people's houses then when one of the camera feeds detects something sketchy they go look at it and see okay is it like a dog that's just walking by your property or is there a person creeping around and then they would alert someone instead of alerting the police they would alert one of their own people to go out so in a way what i'm proposing could be stitched into an agro society in a way um for example because in the sure it's compatible right yeah. well and, and the thing too is is that you and i we would still want to have people be able to come and go like for example you and i in the all the people in this small society that i'm kind of proposing would not necessarily only be able to trade in and amongst each other we would still have to come out to trade you know like this is more like a neighborhood on the street of one and we can let people in and out as well like like for example i could let people on and off of my property all the time for when i want to and sometimes without knowing whether I actually want them there or not, you know, solicitors, for example, like someone might come to my house to try to sell me something and I would, you know, coming and trying to sell me something is not necessarily aggressing on me. You know, coming onto my property is not aggressing necessarily. Um, to me, it depends on why you're there, you know, um, and until I'm able to confirm why or not want to confirm why even, you know. Uh, it would be different. So it, I think it's, you know, 
maybe nuancedly different, but I don't think it's that different really um, to clear, to try to clear that contradiction up because, you know, say if we were to want to have a market square, then no, we wouldn't want to restrict people from coming into the market. Like the idea of an, in an agro society is that you do want people to come into your market because the more people you have, the more competition you would generally have. And, you know, you don't know whether or not you want anybody would want those goods and no one really controls that marketplace, which brings up, I think, one of the more interesting questions. If you have like, there's this idea of the free market as in it's a physical place where things go down, where that's not necessarily the case either. Right. There, there, but there would be privately held market squares where, and you see this happen already, right? At like conventions and stuff. Um, People who want to be vendors and buy and sell things need a place to do that. Well, a person who owns a big enough place with maybe amenities to support both customers and sellers, um, open up that building and then let a bunch of vendors in and the vendors pay a fee to have their, uh, either the vendors pay a fee to open their shops there or customers pay a fee to come in and have access to vendors or both, you know. I don't know. I think that it depends really on how you're doing it. And and yeah, the, the way I'm imagining it was a lot, lot smaller. Like I'm talking like a handful of people. That's not really enough people to form a fully functioning society. It really together. is kind of closer to a commune than a society. Sort of, sort of, yeah. But one in which there is still private property. Just a right, bunch not of a communist commune. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I imagine you would see things like this happen though, but they would all be like, they would be spokes off of the agorist hub, right? Like there would be, have to be the common place where all of the people in these little groups come out to like, you know, interact with each other. They just may not want to live directly next to each other because of preference, you know? Sure. That could possibly exist. Yeah. Right. And I think that you would see pockets like this emerge as a consequence of preference. Like for example, in the book, um, Konkin talks about, uh, subjective value, acknowledging that everything has a subjective value by the person who wants to purchase it or acquire it. Right. Right. So if me and all of my friends wanted to live next to each other, we would place a higher value on the land around each other than other people normally would. Yeah. Meaning that we would be willing to pay more money for it. So in a free market where there wasn't any regulation on who could live where this would happen. Right. As long as we were all also able to afford say it was like roughly like it was undeveloped land just like a bunch of the other places around it and it wasn't particularly valuable for any other reason you know anyone else would value it wouldn't have the same reasons to value it right i'm sure that there would be other people that might you know for other reasons but depending i i think that people wanting to live next to people that they know and have neighbors that they're close to already that behavior would emerge and so you would see and you already see this happen like families do this um, there are a lot of families who all live on the same street for each other, for example, or they live down the street from each other, you know, because the proximity matters to them, you know. Um, but what breaks this up right now is like housing regulations where it's like, you know, if if someone were to go and put a house on the market, you have to offer it at a fair price. If you offer it at a at a fair price, but someone offers you way more for a subjective reason, and you're overpaying for it. That can be seen as some types of like, well, you're not you know, of gouging where it's like, Oh, now that I know that you want to live here because your friends live here, I'm going to charge you a higher price regardless of whether or not you would have paid it anyway, because you wanted to live here. You know, you can find yourself in the weeds with, you know, 
the government essentially. Right, the government inserting itself into your business, yeah. Right. So um but you mentioned something before where like if this is compatible, like this neighborhood would be compatible in an agorist society. One of the things we have on our list to talk about is being this this being a practical measure, right? Um the assumption I think would also be is that you, an agorist would live in a society which isn't. And how do you you know, how do people who are agorists or small groups of agorists interact with non-agorist societies? So like like we, for example, live in a country that has a state, right? Yes. Um so in the same way that we are just people wanting to live our lives, the society that I proposed is not compatible with a state necessarily. Right. Or you'd have to go through extra leaps and hurdles to do so. Like you have to graft on, like like I was saying earlier, like specifically the, the mail example. I don't want a United States government mailing address. I want to be remo- one step removed, right? So now I'm having to do these extra things to remove myself. Yeah. Right. In an agro society, I wouldn't have to do that. You know. So what about agorism in general? How does it interact with, you know, say say you know anybody in the United States who reads this book? And they want to start trying to do this or they get some of their friends to read this book and they want to kind of form a, you know, an agorist group amongst themselves. How do they go about um, existing within a state? Well, I mean, so I, I guess this is the part where we talk about counter-economics. Um, so I, I think I think one, one characterization that I want to kind of dispel a little bit um, before we before we go into counter-economics. Sure. Um Agorism is not necessarily a thing that a group of people have to go into and do together. Sure. Um, you can you can practice agorism alone in your society right now. Um, and, and again, the important thing is, and maybe I didn't do uh, quite a good enough job in the beginning of, of explaining, is that agorism, again, is not merely a philosophy. This is not just a thing that you think about and wish for, like libertarians do. Um, this is something that you can do today. Um, so counter economics is the, it's sort of the, okay. If we think about economics, regular economics as the like study of how decisions are made and you know, what actions people decide to take based on costs and benefits, counter economics is this same thing studying the costs and benefits, but with the, like, taking into consideration the practical consequences of everything that might happen if you do that. Um, and so, a essentially, counter-economics is the economics of the black market. Um, that's, that's sort of how it's portrayed in the book, although he kind of doesn't like the term black market, but that's what other people would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you might consider, okay, well, I want to do this thing, you know, I, I want to sell this thing, but it's illegal to do that. So, okay, well, I stand to make this much profit from the sale. How likely am I to get caught doing it? And what's the fine for doing it? And then you can, you can weigh that out mathematically, not just subjectively, and decide whether it is worth your while to do it anyway. 
Um, and so again, people are already doing this already. We call it the black market. The difference between an agorist and any other like black market business person is that the agorist is doing it as a matter of principle, as a matter of doing what they want because they can, where the black market individual or like other black market participants might still agree with the state. They still think that, you know, that the institution of the state is fine, but they disagree with a particular thing. Like it's getting in the way of them particularly doing this one thing that's illegal and not that the whole system of the government getting to tell you how to live your life is wrong. Right. Like he mentions, you know, and even goes on to say that the more regulations and stringent things, like the counter economy, as he refers to it, is the co- the collection of all these activities, right? Um, right. So, yeah, what others would call the black market, he calls the counter economy. Right. Well, I think it even goes further because there, yes and no. I think most people, when they say the black market, they think of a, there's a shady place where shady people do shady deals. Right. Which that is a black market. That is also part of the counter economy. But that is a small, small fraction of the counter economy. Yes. Good example. In the neighborhood in which I live, there are people that if my yard gets high enough, will just stop by my house and walk up and knock on my door and ask me if they want, if I want my yard mowed and we will discuss a yeah, price. Get, yeah. Yeah. You negotiate a price and you just hand them some cash and they do it. Mm-hmm. No it's taxes under the table. Paid. No taxes. Right. That's illegal. That is very illegal. Yeah. But, but that's the counter economy. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, any in pretty much anything that you've ever bought or sold to somebody directly, not through a business, is part of the counter economy. Um, you see this happen in schools all the time. Like this is my favorite microcosm example of yes. the counter economy. Is um, I grew up in a time when they took sugary sodas out of vending machines in schools because fat kids were a problem. Whilst whilst I agree, um, people want to. They want their full gas Cokes, okay? And so a counter economy emerged. Yep. Um, I would purchase, you know, full gas Cokes and Mountain Dews or whatever and keep them in my locker at school and people knew where they could come and get them when they wanted them, you know? And so, or I'd keep them in an ice, when I got older and was able to drive myself to school, I would keep them in an ice chest in my truck, you know? And then I could just sell people to, sell them to people during lunch and whatever. And as I got older... Um, same thing with alcohol. You're prohibited for purchasing and consuming alcohol under a certain age. Well, um, how many people do you know consumed alcohol before the age of tw- 18 or 21, depending on where you live? Most people. Most people that I know, yeah. Every single activity that went into making that happen is a counter-economic activity. Same thing with illegal drugs. Every, you know, marijuana use across you know, the United States is super prevalent and these systems didn't just spring up overnight when these things became legal no they already existed there are incredibly vast distribution networks for narcotics and schedule three substances or whatever the schedule is the u.s law that determines that legal schedule drugs. one i think schedule one okay well it doesn't matter doesn't matter <clears throat> the illegal stuff but most people in the united states are, are at least are under three degrees of separation from a drug dealer at almost all times. You know what I mean? Whether you realize it or not, you, if you don't know someone who yeah, would sell you drugs, every street corner, you can find somebody who can sell you drugs. Yeah. Right. And not only that, if you don't know anybody who sells drugs, you probably know someone who knows someone who does. So it's yeah. only two degrees of separation. And 
that's incredibly vast considering how large the United States is and that there are over 350 million people that live here. Pretty impressive. And so all of this constitutes the counter economy. And so, and the more heavy handed the government tends to be about these things, the more extensive it is. Good example, back to North Korea, the more things that you can't just acquire, the harder it is to acquire any given thing, people will try to dodge it, defy it and go around it. So whereas like food is not restricted necessarily in most places in the United States, except in places like I outlined in schools, like there's a reason that there is no underground black market for Coca-Cola in the United States amongst adults. It's not regulated. It's taxed. Maybe right. I can walk into any store and buy it. Yes. I will pay a tax for it, but, but even then the only, and there are institutions that exist to help you get around taxes as well, but everything that is falls into that. But in my school example, there's more restrictions. So there's more counter, you know, counter economic activity in a place like North Korea, where food is rationed and even look back at the United States during food rations, um, during world war two, most places during the world war two, uh, had rations of some type. People would trade their ration tickets around all the time to get different things. Like, Hey, you know, um, I really, really want like good example. People wanted like there's the stories of people who wanted to make a cake but you needed more sugar than your rations would allow. People would go around each other and defeat the purpose of rations to get the ingredients they needed to make that cake and trade for them with other people, essentially spitting in the face of the whole point of rationing, but they were allowed to do that. And so that's the point he makes is that the places where you see the most heavy handed regulations, you'll see actually the largest counter economies. And I think, you know, using the term black market is just, vastly you know underestimating exactly what we're talking about with this activity right and and this is activity that most people have decided to engage in like me paying cash to the lawnmower there is a there's a very very low risk associated with that you know um so right the police around here have much more important things to do than go cracking down on who's Mm -hmm. uh offering lawn mowing services without paying taxes yeah exactly and so i don't know um he also mentions one of the most overbearing economies of uh, government controlled economies of all time which was the uh communist uh the united the the ussr's communist economy like how heavy-handed the government regulations were not in just the consumption and trade of goods but even the generation of goods you know he goes into talk about how yeah, the collapse of the Soviet Union was in large part due to the counter economy that existed. Um, nearly everything was available in the counter economy, um, not just the shady things. You know, because everything was right, controlled. Right, like food. Yeah, yeah, just food was available. Um, and um, and that same thing with production. You know, oh, this place is supposed to produce so many things, and like, like, for example, uh, the, the way this controlled economy went is, oh, it doesn't make sense to have shoe factories everywhere. It just makes sense to have one large shoe factory and push all the people. And, and you saw this happen. Like, um, if you look at, like, the Chernobyl uh, incident, that's what a lot of people know of that instance. The city around Chernobyl existed just to support that power plant. You know, everybody who lived in the city in one way or another 
was associated with the power plant and they built like a micro society around it, right? This was kind of their model for building their economic system. Well, turns out, no, actually, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have, you know, all your shoemakers in one place and then try to let logistics figure the rest out. Sometimes it makes more sense to have shoes made elsewhere. So there would be shops that were other leatherworking shops designed to make other things that would end up making shoes because it was cheaper to make higher quality shoes. Cheaper and higher quality shoes could be made locally to you and purchased illegally. You know, it, all kinds of things like this existed. Um, so, I don't know. It, it It's it's interesting to see, and I think most people have already participated in the counter-economy, whether they realize it or not. And that's all I'm saying, is that once you realize that, it makes it a little bit easier to, like, look at, well, what other things could I do? And, you know, I think that, that that's one of the things about this that's interesting to me is that it's it's like you can kind of build your own system like the, it acknowledges the risk you know what i mean um some people are more risk averse than others and if it's paying someone cash to mow your lawn that's pretty low risk most people would be okay with that other people choose to use substances which have been deemed illegal you know whether it's an underage person consuming cigarettes or alcohol or an adult who's consuming a narcotic you know but most people that really want them bad enough will assume the risk of getting caught for those things. And all of that places a burden on the state to continue to be able to exert its control. Like if the state attempted to exert its control fully, like trying to catch every single person who was paying cash for someone mowing their lawns, it would bankrupt itself. It would bankrupt itself. And that's essentially what happened to the Soviet Union is because there were so many things that they were trying to control, they kept dumping money and resources into attempting to make this thing work. And it eventually just bankrupted them, you know? Um, so anyway, let, let's, let, that's what I like the most about it is you, the average person can do this, you know? And I think that's kind of what we were kind of leading into with the bullet point after this bullet point, but we can start with this bullet point, I guess, you know, things that you can do to become an agorist today, you know? And it is just acknowledge the things that you do that are counter-economic and acknowledge the things that you do that, you're exercising your freedom to do, even if they're technically illegal, you know, like what's the statistic about how many felonies are committed by the average American every week? Well, this, it's not a statistic. It's just an estimation by right. an estimation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's estimated that every American commits on average uh, three felonies a day unwittingly. Right. So that's, you know, once you swallow that pill, it's like, what's one more You're felony? You're already a felon, so come on. <laughs> come on, what's one more felony? You, you um, but, yeah, there's there's that aspect. And then also, the uh, an amusing thing that is mentioned in the book is that the government publishes statistics on how many crimes it actually solves compared to how many it thinks are happening. Mm -hmm. And so you can go see how abysmal the success rates are with catching criminals. Right. Well, and most governments operate on this. Um, oh, what's that structure called? Um, oh, it's the prison, not the apocrypha. What is it called? Uh, oh, the panopticon. That's what it's called. And it's this idea that you can't control everybody. But if you can make everybody believe that you could, then it's good enough, right? Yeah. Most governments operate on this principle. And it's named after... Uh, a design, a, 
a, a theoretical design for a prison in which all the cells are open facing inwards and there's a tower in the middle with one-way glass where there may or may not be a guard who may or may not be looking into your cell at this exact moment and may or may not call on you. Yeah, but because you can't tell, you obey the rules always. Right. When the actuality is, is that that's already how things are today. Like, for example, with all the felonies that you commit, you will become very aware of the felonies that you've committed unwittingly the moment they care enough to arrest you. You know, but they can't arrest everybody. They can't go after everybody. And not to mention that, but in at least the United States, there's another thing to think about, and that's you are being judged not by the government, but by other people at the end of the day. That's what the jury is. And most people want to be able to be free to do whatever they want. You know, it, and and most people don't want to do this maliciously either. I think there's this weird assumption that most people, if they could get away with it, would com- would like rob every one of their neighbors blind. You know what I mean? Like they would hold a gun to their neighbor's head and take their stuff and become the king of their little area. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. Because no. you kind of could do that already, you know. Um, one thing that I've been interested in looking into uh, with this, because he mentions cartels in this book. Now, obviously, he's talking about the economic form of a cartel, which is right. a monopoly formed de facto by a bunch of entities getting together and price setting. Right, a conspiracy. A conspiracy, yeah. yeah. Um, but it did get me looking into, like, you know, syndicated crime and things like that as well. Um it's and I I kind of been looking at some interviews of people who operated as a part of this syndicating crime because they're kind of a double edged sword when it comes to counter economics because they literally operate counter economically in almost everything that they do because they do it illegally. Um, there's plenty of in- interviews with a man named Michael Franchis who defrauded the government out of taxes for collect on gasoline, on purpose. Like they see opportunities to make money counter economically and they take it, and almost all of the arrangements that they make are done in a way where the people that they're robbing are not the citizenry. It's the government. And why would, and you think to yourself, okay, so and the way this kind of fraud worked is that he has a license to collect these taxes on behalf of the government. And so he would go to gas stations and say, Hey, I'm going to collect your tax, not this other person. Right. Well, why would that other person choose you? It's like, cause I can offer you a cheaper tax rate than anyone else. Because to me, it's free money, you know? So these other gas stations willingly participated, but at a much lower risk. But I was also thinking about, you know, and they talk about things like how extortion is actually extremely difficult. And it's not because of the police why extortion is difficult. It's because people generally don't like being extorted and you can't be everywhere. And extortion only really makes money when you're extorting multiple people because you can't expect them to give... They just don't have, you know... They talk about how, you know, you as this entity are a parasite. You're draining money off of these entities that exist. Well, if you drain them for too much, they go to business. If they go to business, you can't extort them anymore. So you you don't want to do that. So you can only take as much as they can still thrive or not just thrive, but want to continue to do business, right? Um, And so you have to do many people in order to make any serious money doing this, but having... But the more people you bring in, the more they all realize they're being extorted by the same person. And the more they realize, wait a minute, we could all just gang up on the extortionist here and just put the extortionist out of business, you know, and then I'll be fine. You know, um, and it's just very interesting. to, and, and in fact, one of the things that they find that was made the easiest is they could actually just bribe police to 
and, but people with the police around won't work together to kind of overcome this type of thing. They would all just go to the police. And then, then all you have to do is bribe the other cartel in town, the police, and there you go. You can extort them all day, you know? And so, I don't know. I, in my mind, this is not as far-fetched and th- as theoretical as it could be. You know, is it, you know, as it really, as people act like it is, you know, like if me and all my neighbors, if one of my neighbors starts trying to, you know, take money and say, hey, I'm going to collect a protection fee from all of the people on the street. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And they break my mailbox. I can just go to every one of my neighbors and be like, hey, is this person threatened you too? And they'll be like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of weird, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it is kind of weird. Hey, how about we all stop him from threatening us in the future? And the next time he shows up to threaten me at my mailbox, we deal with it. You know what I mean? Give a give a little educational beat down, if you will. Yeah, or whatever, you or know. Whatever the consequences may be. Sure. And then if you were to see the inverse where it's like, oh, everybody on the street wants to go then extort him, well, he'll move. Right. So, yeah, there you go. The neighborhood's not going to go chase him to keep extorting him. Yeah. Exactly. So, I think that brings us to maybe one other thing, which is the, does does this stand a chance? Because I think that's the other thing that I talk with about, uh, that I talk with, talk about with other people is viability. Yeah, but will this ever actually happen? Yeah. Right. So, and and I bring this up when I talk to anybody about any philosophy or policy or whatever you know um because people love to talk about their policy prescriptions all day um for example people all the time say oh well multifamily homes are the most efficient way to house people cool but do people want to do that no because most people own single family homes and those are the people that vote and they don't want that so even if even a something is more efficient doesn't mean people want it exactly and um so it doesn't matter so why are we wasting time talking about it like you could be right but it won't matter you know but let's look at you know agorism through this lens what do you think will agorism ever achieve its goal of a free society i think that's the long-term goal but let's look at it's pragmatic right let's look at the short-term goal like how hard do you think it would be to convince someone to take on this way of thinking and exercise some uh agorist activities like participating in counter economics for example like we've already acknowledged that most I mean, people yeah, already we've already do. acknowledged that most people already do this but they're not doing it as a matter of principle they're doing it as a matter of well the guy came up and offered to cut my grass for for cash and it was convenient for me to do so so i did or i'm in a lot of pain but the doctor won't prescribe me enough drugs so i went and bought some drugs or something like that mm-hmm. um but they're not doing it because you know they're not doing it like you don't necessarily have to participate in counter economics despite the state but i feel like a lot of agorists would um right people who identify as agorists probably would do that um but yeah i mean i i don't think it's i don't think it would be all that hard to convince somebody that it's like no what you're doing is not wrong and you should keep doing it because the reason you're suffering like you are right now, if I'm talking about like the person in pain who can't find drugs legally, mm-hmm. it's like you're suffering because men with guns are causing you not to be able to get the relief that you need. You should go against them and get what you need anyway. I don't think a person like that would be difficult to convince. No. Um, and it's like, and now that you're on board with the idea that this 
band of thieves is oppressing you, why not think of other counter-economic activities that you can do to spite them to to your own benefit? Right. Because well, obviously you don't want to just do stuff and get in trouble for j- just to spite them. Sure. Or most people wouldn't anyway. Um, like, even if, even if there's nothing wrong with you, it's like, look, none of this stuff is wrong. Why don't we do this anyway and we can make a bunch of money doing it? Mm-hmm. You sound like my local mob boss. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, <clears throat> well, I think that the trick is that it already works, right? I think that what makes it so easy is that it almost doesn't matter whether you want to or not. People... That's the other thing. Like, yeah, you, you, sorry to interrupt, but no, you, 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 yeah, like you asked me how easy it would be to convince people, but it's like, but again, we've already, you don't have to convince most people to participate in the counter economy. They're doing it already. They're just not on principle. But what that means is, you know, the few of us who do want to do it on principle have a huge advantage because everyone else is already playing the game. Yep. You, this is not an ideology where you have to get everyone on board, right. which is the downfall of so many other ideologies um, where it's like, well, if only everybody would agree, well, they won't. So you're done. Right. Um, but almost everybody does agree yep. that this stuff is okay to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, and I was telling you earlier about those interviews with the uh, mobsters, gangsters, whatever you want to call them. Um, they were asked about like, well, what do you do with like all these goods? Like, cause that's another thing that they do is they ferry goods. Right. And services like, well, how do you do that? It's like, well, people don't care where it comes from. You know, if I steal a truck, that's got a bunch of, uh, construction equipment on it. Like if I go to a government job site, that's going to pay for all these things. And I steal, or, you know, I steal all these tools or whatever people. And granted, I'm not saying that we should go around stealing things and selling them to promote counter economics, but it's on the seller side where it makes sense. Like people don't care. You know, if I walk up on a job site and say, hey, are you looking, you know, I got, I got a set of tools here. Um, you could buy these same tools at a store. I'll give you the same price minus taxes because it's just you and me doing cash. Most people go, yeah, all right, cool. You know, and um, additionally, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people are super cognizant of the taxes due on things for services like for example a business we're very aware of sales tax right most people are and i think that if i ever had to look at a policy prescription that i think would make counter economics just even more popular and there's an example i'll give in a moment that's kind of rearing its head about this um there's a reason we don't raise sales taxes for everything and in fact sales taxes are kept pretty consistent a lot of the time yeah because the higher they are the more people will seek to defeat them exactly it's much much easier to target a group that you can control than everybody right um but like for example the the tr- with the rise of the internet and being able to transact money electronically right well it's become easier than ever for me to buy things from people like look at online yard sales right Yard sales are a counter-economic free market in a lot of ways. Right. Nobody pays their taxes on yard sales. Mm -mm. No. Yeah. First of all, most yard sale operators are not licensed to collect sales tax. Yep. And then they're not going to report it as income either. Nope. And when you show up, the price on everything there is, is super negotiable. And people know that. People go to yard sales all the time and haggle. 
It's not like going to Walmart. It's a pastime activity. Yeah. You don't go into Walmart and say, hmm, these Cheerios are $3 a box. I'll give you two fifty for them. Like Walmart's like, no, nah, get out of here. Uh, what no, are you talking leave. about? Yeah. Yeah. $3 or leave. Yeah. Yeah. $3 or leave. But it, uh, and, but add the internet, like look at the whole retail arbitrage industry that's cropped up around old school yard sales where you have people, like if you open a yard sale, I guarantee you, you'll have at least a couple of people come through with their phones out and they'll just go through everything. They'll pick something up and they'll look at it and they'll Google something. They'll look at the label. Or they'll scan a barcode. Right, and they're seeing what people online are going to pay for it. Yeah. So they're that they doing can work. buy it from you and retail it online. Yeah. Yeah. Which you're fine with because... Because you get the money that you got the sale that you wanted. Yeah. And you're... And usually people who are doing yard sales... I would say there's two primary reasons to do a yard sale. One is fundraising where you have something in mind that you want to buy. But a lot of yard sales are mainly just, I have all this junk. It's It's robbing me of space or I'm going to move soon or whatever. Like I just want to get rid of it and recoup some cost. That's your primary motive as the yard seller. This person who happened to get up early on a Saturday morning, they're here to make profit. They want to buy something from you, turn around and sell it online and make a profit. And then the buyer online, they just want to buy something specific. That's hard to find for a good price. And so the free market allows these three individuals to work together to solve the all three of their problems. Yeah, it's a win-win-win. Yeah. Exactly. And almost no taxes are paid through any of this, usually. Like a lot of these online marketplaces, for example, I would be interested to know how many online marketplaces don't actually facilitate the actual transaction. Like someone lists something for sale and then unlists it. How many of those are being unlisted because they're just being sold on the side? Because the site would collect a fee otherwise, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's that anyway. Um, and that's not even a tax, um, but to the participants, it kind of functionally is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can, you can see that too. And yeah, a lot of these places have policies in place and, uh, like big ones like eBay will have like bots in place to try to like read the private messages of things that w- after they get delisted and it's like, were you, were you doing a sneak? Um, did you sneak? <laughs> did you do sneak? Yeah. Um, but then again, they also don't prohibit most people from putting their email on their profile. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, also a lot of the big sellers on eBay are businesses, so they're going to have their contact information on there. So they can't just make it against the rules to do that. But, Mm -hmm. but the point I'm trying to get at is, is that, uh, but I mean, even eBay, I don't even think eBay will generate like a tax report for you. They're not collecting taxes. Mm Mm-mm. They just take their fee and it's up to you to collect slash pay taxes. And most people don't. Right. Because most people are only going to be using it for, you know, a few hundred or maybe a couple thousand dollars of transactions a year. But agents of the state have noticed this. And recently, you know, uh, there have been, and I'm not saying that it's only recently, but there's, there's been this effort by the state to figure out how they can tax this stuff. And, I think the day that they try is going to be the day that you really see the counter economics rear its head. For example, PayPal transactions. If you send more than if you send and or receive, I forget how it works. So much money. Oh no, no, it was, it was bank accounts. If you move so much money, if you have a bank account over a certain amount, like $600, $2,000. Now the government can like inspect your, inspect your statements. Well, people are going to look at that and go, Oh, okay, well maybe I don't want that anymore. Why would I do that with the bank? That's going to just tell, tell on me. 
You know, like what are all these transactions you've been collecting? You know, we should have collected so much in sales tax based on how much money you spent, but we didn't, you know, like, you know, things like PayPal make it really, really easy because now it's just, you know, if they could get a hold of PayPal and see, hey, why are you, why did over the course of the last year, have you sent, like, for example, I send my, I, I, I send my mother money every month. It's kind of a, you know, she, she's either lent me money or um, something like that. Like I needed some work done on the house and I didn't happen to have the capital in pocket to do it. So I borrowed it from her because, I mean, family interest rates are zero. So way better than going to a bank. But that's illegal, technically, for her to lend me money at a 0% interest rate and me pay her back over time. Technically, that I'm, I don't even know how, but I'm sure that it's illegal somehow for her to lend me a certain amount of money and then me pay her back over a period of time. No written contract, you know. Yeah, and probably. Probably illegal somehow. Um, maybe because she's not a oh she's not a certified lender. You have to have a license to lend out <laughs> so much money. Um, or if she's just giving it to you, like they like as egregious as it sounds, there is a tax on gifts. You know. Yep. No one cares. No one's ever paid that tax. No one ever has paid that tax. Yeah. No. Unless people that are Except doing maybe like yeah relatives of millionaires. Where it's obvious how much money is moving. Yeah. And those people are under a lot of scrutiny anyway. Right. And it was cheaper to pay that tax than it would be to pay a salary for a, somebody to work for you or whatever. But ordinary people, nobody has paid that tax. Most right. people don't even know it exists. And even people who do exist may not even know how to pay it. Right. And why would I bother looking up how to pay it? Because no one's going to find out. Yeah. So, I guess when you go to, like, would it become popular? I would argue that it already is. You just don't know it. It is, but not as a matter of principle. That's the only difference. Sure. Is that, yeah. Most counter-economy counter participants are not agorists. But they are allies to agorists. <laughs> exactly. But it's a lot easier to spread, like you said before. Oh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, philosophies about how we should live and organize societies. Well, if everybody was a communist, communism would work. It's like, but they're not, and but so they're not. it won't. But everybody participates in counter economics already. So right. how do we push that forward? So it, it appears that there are things that people can agree on because they're incentivized to do so. And I think that's the other thing that, uh, that I kind of want to maybe is maybe the last thing we want to talk about that Konkin acknowledges is that um, counter economics takes into consideration people's incentives from their subjective valuation of things. Everything in the market has a value that's subjectively assigned by the participants of that market. And people will work to achieve that as freely as possible because that also usually means with at the cheapest price. So as long as that's true, you know, agorism will work or if it doesn't you know he at one point he acknowledges that you know agorists look at have to find the facts the consistent facts in reality he makes a big emphasis about consistency being consistent and acknowledging reality around you again these things are just pragmatism and by another name in my mind um and so we need to you know if the re if the shifting reality changes it will be different like like what agorism would look like in a post-war economy or like in a natural disaster is going to be very different from the way it looks 
in a place like the United States, which is like a liberal democracy versus how it would look in a place like Saudi Arabia, which is a theocratic monarchy. You know, they just look different, but the principles are the same and they all seem to act in, a, in accordance. And not only that, but what makes the prince driving these things from a set of principles more interesting is that you already have your counterbalance system. You know, the more heavy-handed the regulations, the more counter-economic activity you get. So it's almost like a pressure release for the the worse things get for you in your society from a freedom perspective, the more easy it is for you to kind of organize people around it. You know, so there's an incentive, you know, and if you were in a government and you acknowledge this, then you're just ultimately restricted by how much people will put up with on a gradient. It's not like people snap and turn one day and become full counter economists and stop paying their taxes. It's on a gradient. Like, yeah, today I have this need. Yeah. 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 And it, and the moment any regulation is introduced, some counter economic response is made. It's like Newton's third law. Almost for every statist authoritarian action, there is an equal and opposite counter economic action pushing back against it. And so if you want to, you know, to borrow that, I guess, but so you know, the seeds are already out there and it's not because we came up with this and people adopted it. It's because you're just acknowledging a reality that people want to be free. People want, don't, people don't want people messing around in their business, except when they do, you know? And to me, the thing that's not talked about too, too much in the book, but is I think a consequence of the reality is that there's nothing inherently counter-economic about people coming together to do things in to do things that place restrictions on each other, right? I think the hardest part about how you mix these things is that right now a lot of laws that are placed on you, a lot of the rules in where you live, they predate you. You didn't you weren't there to vote on it. You moved here afterwards. But even then, by moving here, you kind of accept, you know, like like you and I have talked about it. Like people who live in cities, you know, being firearms enthusiasts as we are, you know, people who live in cities, they can't just go out in their backyard and shoot their firearms at targets. No matter if you did it responsibly. Like say I built a really like impenetrable berm and I was the only right, one who used it. Your neighbors are still going to complain because it's noisy. But, but even if I use suppressors, and made it quiet enough that they couldn't hear it. If one of my neighbors just sees me doing it, they're going to feel threatened. Because that's not safe. And they're right. There is I I am operating doing something risky in a high risk area for it, right? Even though but but you know, even though I may have done everything in my power and I can even if I could objectively prove that there's no way shape or form I could ever hurt anybody and the actual risk is very very low. It doesn't matter. The perceived risk of those around you can be felt as threatening. And that's where you walk into the NAP problem. Because the reality of the NAP is, is it doesn't matter whether you're actually in threat or not. A lot of it has to do with whether you legitimately feel at threat. And the other thing that you have to acknowledge with the NAP is that both of those things matter. But it also matters what literally every other person in the room thinks. You know, like if I feel threatened by someone standing next to me and I make some action to take some action to defend myself because I feel that I'm in imminent danger, but no one else around me felt that that was the case. 
in that moment, I am the aggressor to everyone else. And so you have to factor society into these things. And the way you can kind of work that gradient is choose how much society you want to live in. You know, live a society in a city of millions of people is going to be a lot more complicated, but societies outside are less. And I think that's kind of, you know, we're kind of walking out of the scope, but that would be a different topic. But I think the nice thing, though, is that agorism being a pragmatic acknowledgement of the environment that it's in can operate in all of these places with varying degrees of like self-imposed restriction as needed. And maybe that's something we could talk about at a different time is like, you know, how does that actually work with the varying sizes of society? So I think that's all I really have for today. I think uh, we could have maybe gone more into some of the practical things, or not practical things. Well, yes, practical things, but for the far future, if agorism is to succeed, of like conflict resolution and things like that. But if you're interested in that, you can read the book uh, for yourself. It's very short, 66 pages. Mm -hmm. Um, You can read it in an afternoon if you wanted. It's freely available online as well. Yep. We may or may not post a link if we remember. I will try to remember. Um... So, uh, anyway. Philosophers. Philosophers. If you like the music in this episode, please check out Jippy on Bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com. Philosophers is supported by viewers like you. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future, please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description, or in the comments below. Thank you for listening.